You're listening to Nerdy Jobs, a podcast presented by NerdsOnEarth.com. Nerdy Jobs aims to highlight both the creativity and professionalism of those behind the nerdy things we love. This episode features Eric Mona, publisher at Paizo, who will be talking about the upcoming Pathfinder 2nd Edition and what that means for the world of Galarian. Hi, Eric Mona. We're ready to talk about Galarian and Pathfinder 2.0. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, this is this is fun. So when we talk to folks, we like to ask the, the same question of everyone, which essentially like, what, what's your origin story? You know, how, what got you in RPGs and, and get you all the way out to, to Washington state, to, um, you know, be the publisher at Paizo. Well, I'll try to give you the, the Cliff's notes uh, version. I know it's only an 11 hour podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I started really young. I've always been, you know, kind of a precocious, imaginative child. So I you know, was really into action figures and making up stories and things like that. And uh, by the time I was in uh, early grade school, I had an older cousin who was starting to get into uh, AD&D. And this would have been 1982, 1983 in there. And just at that time, the junior actually the grade school that i was going to i uh, had an after school class to learn how to play uh D. oh wow yeah and unfortunately the class was only available for what they called upperclassmen which was fourth fifth and sixth graders and because i was in third grade uh, i couldn't get into the class but fortunately for me my mother uh, before i came along had been a teacher in the same school system and so she knew some uh, levers and she got she actually threw a little bit of her uh cat her personal capital and weight around <laughs> and got uh, got me in a year early uh, to the after-school D&D class. I uh, became pretty much obsessed with that. Very shortly after that, my dad got a, uh, he was a baseball card collector, is a baseball card collector. And uh, he bought a big collection that had a couple of long boxes of comic books. And I was very excited about the comics, but tucked away in the back of one of the boxes were a bunch of old D&D modules uh-huh. and, uh, and Dragon Magazine. And, and at that time, I didn't even know there was such a thing called Dragon Magazine. And so probably about 1985 or so, I got my hands on Dragon and realized after reading editorials by... Uh, you know, Roger Moore and uh, Kim Mohan, that there was actually, uh, there was a guiding hand to a magazine like that. And I decided pretty much, I would say as early as, certainly as early as sixth grade, maybe fifth, that I wanted to make it my life quest to uh, become uh, uh, editor of Dragon Magazine. And so from that point forward, pretty much every decision I made professionally, creatively, education, whatever, even though I was trying to build a, you know, well-rounded person, because I figured there was no chance that I would ever be able to do that job, always in the back of my head was, you know, does this make me a more attractive candidate for being the editor of Dragon? And uh, eventually, uh, by uh, volunteering during college uh, with the RPGA and playing a lot of uh, games of D&D all around the world as the Living City campaign uh, kind of bloomed, um, I became a staff member at Wizards uh, in 1999, editing Polyhedron Magazine, which was the official magazine for the um, organized play campaigns they were doing. And I co-launched uh, Living Greyhawk, which at the time was the largest organized play campaign in the world, ran that for a couple of years and then was transferred to the periodicals department at Wizards. That got spun off after Hasbro bought Wizards into an independent company called Paizo. I was one of the first employees at Paizo uh, as the basically the assistant editor on Dragon and Polyhedron at that point had become a, uh, a section. I'm sorry, the, the assistant editor on Dungeon. And Polyhedron was about the back, I don't know, third of Dungeon for a brief period. Right, yeah. And I kind of ran that. And then um, over the next several years became editor-in-chief of Dungeon, then became editor-in-chief of Dragon, 
then uh, the licenses kind of uh, got uh, ended around the time of uh, fourth edition D&D. And that's when we launched Pathfinder. And at that stage, I was already the publisher here at Paizo. Uh, and I have been here pretty much every day since we opened our doors in 2002. So all along the way, uh, you know, I co-launched Living Greyhawk. I did, uh, I did uh, Pathfinder Society. Um, I've written a bunch of adventures. Uh, I've written the Pathfinder comic. I've done some stuff for D and D. You know, I'm I've been a, I've been a writer and an editor and a publisher uh, professionally in the business since 1999, and a writer actually about 95. That is some laser focus for you to as a as a little kid to read this magazine and be like, I am going to take this over one day. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre, and and I, I was able to. It's kind remarkable. Of, I love it. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, is with the um, the shift to digital content and things like that, I, I actually I think I was able to kind of pull it off at the exact perfect time. It was a, there was only really one decade, I think, where I could have been um, the editor in chief of Dragon. And it was after kind of the Internet broke and you could form personal connections with uh, the the developers and the designers and things for a while i was just a cranky greyhawk fan on aol and then i started helping out with continuity and got to know the people who wrote the game and and i think that helped a lot and then um you know within 10 years after that uh you know the announcement of the end of uh, paisa's era on on dragon you know someone from watsi said well the internet's where people go for this <laughs> kind of content so we're not really doing print magazines anymore so not only did i get a chance to be the editor of Dragon. Um, from a certain point of view, I was the last editor of Dragon, or at least the last editor yeah. of the the print version of Dragon, which was the only one I was ever particularly interested in. Hey, sometimes luck matters. You know, you min max your character, but then sometimes you still need to roll that natty twenty. Well, yeah, it is so. about taking up, you know, advantage of the opportunities that you kind of yeah yourself yeah. In some degree. All right, so folks are stoked about Pathfinder two and gosh, in our little nerds on Nurse Slack channel, we just banter about it. Uh, all the time. Just so excited. Cool. Um, and then obviously Galarian, the the setting of Pathfinder, and I'm a big Galarian fan. And so if I had my elevator pitch for Galarian, I would say that it is objectively the best campaign setting of any RPG of all time. So wow. feel free like to that. use that one. That's that's my eleva- elevator that's pitch. Wrong. I might have to use that on a back cover blurb if we. Uh, if yeah, we're I'm very objective here. Yeah, but I would love for you to be able to give your elevator pitch. So explain Galarian to folks who may not be familiar. Um, well, Galarian, I think. I mean, the very, very short uh, elevator pitch is it's a kitchen sink setting that that doesn't suck. Uh, but I think <laughs> the, the, the the better one is when we sat. The better story is that when we sat down to create Galarian, we we a bunch of us who've been playing um, fantasy role-playing games for most of our lives, thought through, you know, what kind of campaigns do people like to play? And some people would say, well, I like a really politically, you know, political intrigue campaign where you never leave the city. And another person would say, I love a, a quest where you go from place to place to place. And another person would say, I really love the under, you know, the underworld in the the dark lands of the earth, you know, where the evil creatures live. And, and someone else would say, I really like guns and all that kind of stuff. And so we wanted to try to create a setting which over the course of about 50 different nations on two different continents gives you kind of whatever flavor you really want to play and does it in a way that is holistic and that uh, ideally works, you know, with their neighbors and things like that. So there are sort of geographical regions that uh, align to some thematic similarities um, and uh, you kind of get to pick the thing that fits best the type of game that you want to play. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, that's it. You want to play crazy spaceship crashes and everybody's got a, uh, you know, broken old laser. We got that. You want to play a campaign where you're carving your own kingdom out of wilderness. We've got the river kingdoms. You want to play, you know, like a crazy sort of Narnia land where everything's under a a magical uh, winter. We have that, you know, we've got lots of different uh, flavors uh, to choose from. So it's a full service campaign setting. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and it all, it's all over the place, but it also makes sense. That's what I love about it. It, it gives you that variety, but it also does so in a, in a plausible, logical sense. You know, as, as much as possible. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's a fantasy setting, you know, everybody needs to relax and have a little fun with it, right? Yeah, yep. That's exactly what we're shooting for. So in our Nerds on our Slack channel, I mentioned that that we were talking about this, but there, there are also a couple folks in there that just aren't familiar. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're doing Pathfinder 2.0, so what, what are you guys doing to help make Galarian approachable for folks who might be coming for the first time, but, you know, they might not have familiarity with, with Galarian at all? How, how, right. how would you advise those folks? Well, um, when we're talking about Pathfinder 2nd Edition, I think it's important to kind of understand that it's really a two-phase process. And and, uh, right now, we're even pre-phase one. Here at PaizoCon, which is next uh, weekend here, just a couple of days, we'll have the first public, you know, for real playtest, not at a trade show or something like that. So people will be able to play uh, some demos of 2nd Edition Pathfinder. But what it's all gearing up toward is the playtest, which kicks off on August 2nd of uh, next year. Uh, I'm sorry, of this year. And so... um, there's the play test, which goes about seven months or so, and that's all geared toward getting a, an actual second edition game out in 2019. So we've got the play test section right now, which is about tightening up the rules, making sure that, um, you know, uh, our experimentation with presentation and stuff like that all works. Um, that'll be a free download uh, that's available on August 2nd. It happens to be the first day at Gen Con. It'll be available for sale at Gen Con, and it'll be available for sale in retail stores uh, as well. But so there's kind of a different perspective when you're talking about the play test and then the actual true second edition. And so within the context of the play test, um, you know, for all of this year, uh, outside of the playtest rulebook, the playtest adventure, and the playtest uh, flip mat multipack, um, everything that we're doing is still in first edition uh, Pathfinder. So, in terms of like, how do you understand what the game, the world is all about? Well, you're still, I would say, check out the Inner Sea World Guide, which is a you know, 300 page guide to all the different countries in the world. Uh, we, of course, in the era of second edition. We'll have a whole different, you know, uh, slate of of products and ways to get people into the setting. We're kind of in that interregnum period right now where our focus is really on the mechanics of the game um, and making sure we've got all that solidified. Uh, So for the purposes of the playtest, our assumption is a little bit that, uh, you know, people can go to first edition sources for the campaign setting stuff that they need. Now, that said, we've also created this 96 page playtest adventure called Doomsday Dawn, um, which takes you to a several different locations throughout Galarian. And it really does kind of provide you with everything you need to playtest the rules over a series of seven sort of interlinked scenarios. Um, there are there is more Galarian in the rules now than there really has ever been before. Oh, wow. Uh, but I, I, I should, That's great. Uh, yeah, but I should be really clear about what I mean by that. 
Um, because it doesn't mean that like the elf section starts with a four page description of the nation of Kionin and the history of the elves in our world. But what it does do is that it assumes that the things that are true of elves in Galarian are also true in the Pathfinder rules themselves. So you'll see rules for forlorn elves, for example, which are elves who right. have up among humans and seen generations of their friends sort of pass away um, uh, ephemerally before their eyes, you know, relatively speaking, and what that does to their psyche. Um, you'll see so that the gnomes of uh, Galarian uh, have a tie to the first world, the realm of the Fae. So there is stuff like that. Um, it's rooted in Galarian. Um, our, some of our initial uh, stuff kind of said, you know, it's infused. I think a better way of saying it, at least insofar as the playtest book is concerned, is it's more sprinkled with Galarian. A good example is, um, uh, well, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but uh, so there, there's a belt that gives you a bunch of powers related to dwarves. And so we changed the name of that belt. And so instead of it just being like, it's the dwarf belt, now it's the belt of the five kings. We don't go into wow. depth about what the five kings mountains are or any of that. But Galarian fans will kind of nod and know. And I've always sort of said that if you look at the first edition D&D rules and the way that Greyhawk and Gary Gygax's campaign was kind of the setting, even if it was not explicitly a Greyhawk book, you could assume that the things that were true and the rules were also true in Greyhawk. That is true of second edition Pathfinder from the playtest going forward. Um, th there's a few places in the, the magic items where that's clear. Um, there's a few places sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, and um, they're definitely, for example, uh, there's a description of the human ethnicities and some of the languages in the playtest book as well. Not sure how well that's going to go over. You know, there's definitely people who just want to use Pathfinder as kind of a generic fantasy engine um but uh you, you know we're trying to kind of bring things together and um make it so that if you learn the rule book that works for the main world and, and we'll be as we get into the actual second edition stuff you know like i said we'll be thinking a lot we already are thinking a lot but we'll be doing some things that are sort of on-ramping people to the campaign setting um i think more effectively than even we've done in the past ah, i love it it's a great setting lean into it well you know that's that yeah um, that's what you say. And again, it's like this whole thing is a play test. And so it's going to be interesting right. to see what people, how they react and what they say. And, um, and we're gonna have to measure all that stuff before we do the final book, but we're eager to get feedback and we are leaning into it. You know, again, I think somewhat conservatively, but we are leaning into it. You know, some people will, you know, find it completely abhorrent. How <laughs> dare you say the word first world in the rule book, you know, but and they'll be passionate about it. All, the gods have always been a part of the core rules. I think you could expect to get a little bit more information for, about them in within the context of the core rules. Personally, as someone who likes the setting, I think that's cool. But even for somebody who, you know, if you just say, oh, my my cleric worships Calistria or Desna, and you've got their, their domains and, and stuff, but it doesn't really give you a ton to go on. And, and we want to give people a little bit more info without making it, you know, like a Fates of Galarian type book where we're going into a full chapter for every god. We're not going to do anything crazy like that. Or if we do, it will be as its own separate book. Now, when, when you did Starfinder, mm -hmm. you guys had the gap, which was brilliant it's like oh hey there's some kind of uh mysterious amnesia we all have and right uh which was just a great way to to handle that sort of thing um so when when you go to the second edition of pathfinder like is there going to be some sort of event i mean the the doomsday dawn i mean does that point to something kind of like some big catastrophe that's that's happening in the setting 
Well, um, not if the player characters are successful. (laughs) Uh, So what Doomsday Dawn is all about is um, in the very beginning of Pathfinder, in fact, uh, so early on that uh, we were publishing our adventure modules under the the Game Mastery brand. So those those actually started prior to the Pathfinder Adventure Path started in 2007. We started doing adventures, I think, in 2006. Um, And so uh, one of those adventures was uh, called Entombed with the Pharaohs. And it was set in Assyrian, and it was written by Michael Cortez, who's a great and, and frequent freelancer of ours. And he created this thing called the Octurn Enigma. And Octurn is sort of a, like a, a, a Neptunian-style planet on the far um, uh, uh, stretches of the of the solar system. And it is infused with sort of... Uh, uh, powers of the dark tapestry, which is, you know, the alien, the, the dark spaces between the stars, kind of where our unknowable cosmic horrors come from in the, in the Pathfinder world. And so he created these, this countdown, essentially, these countdown clocks that were cl- counting down to the year 4718 in Pathfinder's world. Um, and uh, it was just as a kind of an Easter egg of, of something that we put a couple of things like that into the setting that were like pointers to things that we might, uh, future versions of our Ourselves or whoever replaced us might be able to <laughs> go back and say, hey, this was, was the plan all along. And the Octane Enigma was one of those. And as we got closer and closer to the idea of doing a second edition of Pathfinder, I think it started almost as a little bit of a, almost a little bit of a joke or, or what, but we we're like, you know what, let's use that thread and let's do it. You know, some people are going to be joking that second edition Pathfinder is the end of the world anyway. So let's do it. <laughs> let's again, sort of lean into it. Uh, you know, the the evil brain collectors are coming to steal everybody's brain unless the heroes can, you know, can stop it. And and, and so the idea is kind of in my head, it's always been like they're coming to, in, in, you know, install your worst nightmares about what we do might do a second edition. And by your characters being victorious in the adventure and by you providing us with the feedback that, you know, that's important to you. We can make sure that the version of, of the world and of the game that we save is one that, that the players are really, really want. And so what that Doomsday Dawn thing is, is it's seven short adventures. We'll be doing uh, playtests for it starting very shortly after Gen Con uh, in, you know, little quick bursts where everybody plays the adventure. We're probably going to do some streaming out of the office of, of us playing the adventure We'll have surveys for all seven adventures, getting people's feedback in terms of, you know, did this power work the way that we wanted it to? How long did your characters survive? You know, uh, was it fun? You know, all that kind of stuff. And in addition to the feedback we've always taken, which is kind of that message board based, just tell us what you think. There's going to be a lot of sort of surveys that are geared toward really getting into the nuts and bolts of how specific parts of the system work. And so that whole Doomsday Dawn, Octurne Enigma, what are the... What are the clocks counting down to? That's all going to be, I wouldn't say 100% tied up because we'll want to come back to those themes, I think, later. But uh, that all that Doomsday Dawn stuff is self-contained within the 96-page Doomsday Dawn playtest adventure. And so that kind of, in some ways, is our gap, if you will. But it's uh-huh. what the players actually play through. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, and so... Uh, what we will do, I mentioned the countdown clock and, you know, 4707. Uh, so basically the way that we do things with our timeline is that the last two digits of the year in Galarian correspond to the last two digits of the year in, uh, you know, in Earth. And so when we started in 2007, the year in Galarian was 4707. 
now that we're in 2018, the year is 4718. And so we can track the passage of time. And one of the things that will happen in the second edition era is we will bring the timeline formally up to date with 4718. And in doing that, we will be revisiting all of the first edition adventure paths and and trying to sort of say, now, if the players uh, completed these things successfully, what implications does that have on the world itself? The best example is probably the Wrath of the Righteous adventure path, which is all about closing the world wound, these gates Mm -hmm. to the abyss that are causing this looming terror to the north of the campaign setting. Well, if we say that the the adventurer's activities in that adventure path are canonized, well, then the world wound is closed by the time 4718 rolls around. So if you haven't been paying too much attention to the setting and you since, let's say, 2007 and you come to the version that we'll be publishing in the era of second edition, you might say, wow, an awful lot has changed. But almost all of the major changes that we're going to be implementing into the setting are the result of PC actions within the context of the adventure paths. So we're we're having our you know, time of troubles or our gap or whatever, but it's simply in codifying the successful activities of adventurers who have been with us since 2000 or since 2007. I'm in. Yeah. You got me. So uh, a good friend of ours are the called shop podcast guys. And one, one guy, one of the guys on the call shop podcast, he, uh, he plays a goblin actually. Um, and so technically goblins are, are playable now, but you know, they're, they're not core. In the second edition, they're going to be core. Um, and it's not races, it's ancestries, right? Yep, yep, we've changed race to ancestry. So, so what are going to be the differences in goblins that, that step them closer to the, to the center of, of the, the playable ancestries? What are you going to do with that? Well, um, we have added a whole bunch of, uh, you know, abilities and things that goblins have uh, in to bring them kind of up to speed with the core options as well. So instead of just being like, well, elves have, you know, 20 options, but if you want to play a goblin, here's three, you know, we're bringing them up to par in terms of what they can do. Um, we're also talking a little bit about... Uh, within the context of the goblin section of the the playtest book, we're talking a little bit about, you know, what does it mean to have a non-evil goblin? I mean, I think a lot of people right. the impression of goblins right now is that they're they're pyromaniacs, they hate dogs and all that. And I think that the, the book goes to some uh, length to sort of say, yes, that is true of goblins in general, but there are, you know, there are exceptions to that rule. And there are increasingly some goblins who are trying to interact with society a little bit more than just trying to light it on fire and eat their dogs and things like that. Um, Now, I will say that we are also working on some sort of in-world stuff about, you know, if, if there are now goblin adventurers kind of where do they come from right and it's because a lot of people have been really desirous for that it's not so much i think in many cases that they're skeptical about the idea they just kind of want or maybe they are but they they want a little bit of guidance as to sort of like okay so wait what do i do and how do i kind of keep this player from not disrupting the entire group you know and i think that's good that's good questions when it comes to evil characters in general but um i think that there's there's some folks who really as much as we can help them on that score they would appreciate so there's going to be some things that are happening within the context of pathfinder society there are going to be some things happening um in other vectors as well for folks kind of looking at like okay so 
my impression prior to this edition was maybe that if a goblin comes into town, they get arrested or, you know, killed on sight. What, why is that not the case? You know, and so we have some thoughts there. Whether they're going to, you know, um, live up to everyone's expectations or not, I think is going to be an individual question. I think some people, you know, some people just don't seem to want goblins. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely in the play test. And, you know, we're going to be listening to what people have to say and 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 trying to um, figure out how to do it. I mean, it's it's an interesting question, because whenever we do goblin oriented stuff at Gen Con or through RPG day or really whenever People are very, very enthusiastic. They love playing that stuff. And so, um, you, you know, we're just going to have to figure out uh, how to make it, how to make it work and if it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is, but, Absolutely. you know, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. All part of the play test. All right. I was wondering if we could rewind just a little bit. We mentioned the inner sea world guide and gosh, I don't know. There's what, 50 countries in there or it seems yeah, 49, like 49. So, I mean, that brings up a question like how much depth can you go into you know, with that many areas or, or do you go breadth, do you go depth and, and will those decisions impact your rollout? It's so interesting that you put it in those terms because those are exactly the terms that we've been discussing sort of in-house. And I should say that, uh, I've got, you know, I know right now what the 2019 schedule is going to look like. So, for example, I know what's coming out at Gen Con with the formal launch of second edition. I know what's likely to come out, you know, between then and the end of the year. I've got a pretty good idea what we're doing in broad strokes terms in 2020 and in 2021. And then I've got, you know, a, a plan that even goes a little bit further out than that. But again, it's like the further away you get from this year, the more foolish it is putting a ton of time into plans because things change. Um, but we have been talking a lot about what the appropriate level of depth and breadth is when it comes to setting material. Um, if you look at the way, say, the inner sea setting has developed, it started, you know, in publication form, it started in the, let's call it 2008 with the Pathfinder Chronicles Gazetteer, which was a 64 page book, uh, written by me and by Jason Bullman with some assists from, uh, James Jacobs and Wes Schneider and James Sutter and others. Um, and that was really like a, a column on each country pretty much. I mean, we're talking 64 pages, not a lot of text. So most of those countries did not get a ton of information. A couple of years later, we expanded that into the Pathfinder Chronicles, uh, book, which was the hardcover, um, uh, world guide book that we did, but that it still was for 3.5. So a couple of years after that, we updated it and expanded that into the, uh, inner sea world guide of today. But even the inner sea world guide does about, I want to say it's probably about four pages per country. And so if what you're looking for is like an overview of the entire world uh, or the entire campaign region, that's a pretty good, good way to go. But if you're looking for like, oh, I want to actually set my campaign in one of these countries, four pages really isn't enough uh, for most people. I mean, you know, it definitely, it's enough to kind of ignite the creative impulse and get you doing a lot of the work yourself. But I have this theory that a lot of people come to path uh, to game publishers so that they don't do that work themselves. They want to totally. do that work for them. So we have been talking a lot. We feel, I feel anyway, that Paizo has been very good about being completist and basically being like, okay, we're going to give you the entire breadth, i.e. all 49 countries. But because of that, by necessity, we're only going to be able to go so deep on those countries. And obviously when we do 64 pages on an entire country, we have lots of room to go into them. Or when we do 
six volumes of an adventure pass set in one region. We've got lots of opportunity to add depth to those regions. But there are regions that have never had more than, say, the four pages that they've gotten in the uh, the Pathfinder uh, Inner Sea World Guide. And I would I would expect those countries to receive treatment in the early years of second edition. And I would expect, you know, any kind of thing where we're like, all right, we want to focus on this for a little while. Um, I think you're going to find that it's going to be a tighter uh, um, breadth and a much deeper approach. If that makes sense. I'm trying to be a little bit vague here. But totally. it really does, when you're dealing with a medium where you have limited number of pages, right. it really does come into balancing breadth and depth. And I think we've done a very good job over the last, you know, geez, what is it, uh, 11 years doing the breadth thing. And I'd like to get a little bit more into the depth business. All right. So we mentioned, you know, 40, 49 countries and, and f- feel free to dance around this question. Uh, okay. there, there might be some spoilers here. So, so feel free to, uh, to be shifty with me. Sure. But, but even in Galarian, even all those countries, there's still some places on the map that are that are off the map and in some places are off the map on purpose, right? It's just to be mysterious and, and the sort of thing. But I also have heard you before say there are a couple of areas where certain writers, like they love those areas, but they haven't had time to really explore them more. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, at some point it's like, all right, you gotta, you gotta put up or shut up. Right. Um, yes. So are, are there going to be some of those areas where you're like, all right, this, this is going to be a, a new place that we are going to, uh, to cover a little more deeply or, or adventure in. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, abs- of course. Absolutely. You know, one of the things uh, that um, I've done is kind of a thought exercise, if you will. I mentioned earlier that um, you can break up Galarian. I think one of the reasons why it doesn't just seem like a mad hosh posh of like, wait, so there's guns in this country and then this country is in feudal Japan. And then this country is in the French revolution or whatever. Um, there is a little bit of that, but we've kind of taken pains to put, um, culturally similar places close to one another, technologically similar places close to one another and so on. And so there are regions that you can identify through both geography and theming, if you will, um, that break down the setting into about a dozen different locales, regions, broadly broadly speaking. Um, And just as a way to kind of get my head around kind of where we've been and where we're going, I, with the help of some of the other folks around here, have kind of done that. I've gone through the process of sort of saying, okay, these countries are kind of a region these countries are kind of a region. It doesn't work perfectly, but it's surprising how well it does work. And uh, and the fact of the matter is, if you look around some of those areas, some of those areas have been very heavily covered in the first 10 years of Pathfinder. So if you, for example, we have done an awful lot in Varicia. Uh, Varicia was James Jacobs's, our creative director's uh, home campaign for a long, long time. And it was the site of our first three adventure paths. We've gone back to it several times. We're going back to it again, uh, starting in August with Return of the Rune Lords. Um, but, uh, and, and we'll go back to it again in second edition. But uh, we've, no one can argue that we have not covered, you know, Varissa. Maybe you could say, I'd love a book on Riddleport or do, do something with Kermaga or do something else. And, and we'll be listening to that as well. But, but like, rest assured, we've done Varissa. We've done 
the Isles of the Shackles with this, the, uh, the Skull and Shackles um, uh, adventure path. We've done a lot on Cheliacs with uh, War for the Crown, or not War for the Crown, but uh, the, the, for the, uh, uh, the, the, the Good and the Evil campaign that we did uh, last year. And with uh, the, the first Pathfinder, first edition campaign was, it was uh, in Cheliac. So we've done a few countries quite a lot. And then you'll hit a country like Raha Doom, and it's like, well, we've done two Pathfinder Society scenarios and a novel set there. Hmm. So that one we haven't done a lot with, you know, and there are other countries where we've done even less than that. And as you say, some of those countries are areas where different staff members have kind of claimed as their own. And that is a a policy that has sometimes worked very well. I think James and Varicia is a great example of that. Um, uh, our old managing developer, uh, Wes Schneider, kind of took Ustalov under his shoulder and did a lot of great development mm-hmm. there. Um, and then other times it's been a little bit more subtle, which is just like, oh, you know, uh, Sutter is the Rahadum guy. So if you want to do something with Rahadum, make sure you run it by him. And that's just a way we make sure we don't put our foot in our mouth or do it accidentally detail the same city, two different products or something like that. So sometimes it's been a little bit more subtle. Um, but what honestly is also happening is you've got a couple of countries, uh, like one for myself, which is the country of Nex, which a lot of people really want to see. And then another one I can think of is James, uh, Jason Bowman's country, which is Razmoran, which a lot of people want to see. And, you know, the director of game design for the company and the publisher mm-hmm. for the company are pretty busy guys. So basically with those two countries, with a handful of other places, we have sort of initiated the... Uh, S O G O T P uh, <laughs> protocols, if you will, on that stuff, and you know, giving people a legitimate chance to do their take of it. But at a certain point, it's like, look, the the the, the we're trying to hit all these countries, mm-hmm. and and eventually, I want to make sure that we have covered every single one of them, you know, to the extent that we have covered any of them, and so um, so we will get to those other countries and some of those places that. Uh, you know, very busy boys have been dilly dallying on are, are, are going to get done, whether the busy boys do them or not. And I say that as chief busy boy. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? When you, you, you want the people who are most passionate about the places to, uh, to be able to, you know, pour their creativity in it. But if they have limited time, then I'll also. It, and that's a struggle. It, and it hasn't really, honestly, it hasn't really been that big of a struggle to date because it's like, Oh, you know, and I'm just using Bowman as an example here, but oh, Jay, Jason's too busy to do the Razmir book. Well, we still haven't done a book on Nirmathas or Molthun or Druma or Kyan. I mean, there's just tons of places we haven't done. But as the years go by, all of a sudden we have done a lot of those places. And, and the number of places we haven't done, I think at this point, if you count Adventure Pass as a significant treatment and a 64-page book as a significant treatment, I think the places that we have done significant treatments now outnumber the places that we haven't, or it's very, very close. So it's getting harder and harder to hide in the bushes of other undone countries. Um, and so those of us who have been dilly-dallying are going to get smoked out pretty soon. All right, before I, before I let you go, uh, r- remind yeah. us again. So, so Gen Con is when the playtest is, is wide release. Um, yep. And that'll go for how many months? Okay, so uh, August 2nd is when all the playtest stuff drops no matter where you are. So it'll be available in bookstores, it'll be available in hobby game stores, it'll be available at Gen Con, uh, and, it, and we'll be shipping pre-orders from Paizo.com to arrive as close to that date as possible. I wouldn't be tremendously surprised if a couple of them arrive sooner than that, but that's the target date, right? And so um, at that point, the playtest is essentially live, 
Now, it'll probably take us about a week to get back from the show, mm-hmm. you know, uh, rediscover our souls again. <laughs> uh, sleep it all. Nice, nice sleep. Uh, yeah. And then so uh, although I don't think we said formally yet, you know, you can look at that like um, second week of August probably is when we'll actually kick things off. And then and then that will move right to Doomsday Dawn, the 96 page adventure. It'll be the first installment to that. We'll kind of have everybody playing that over the course of the next couple of weeks. We'll take feedback and then rinse and repeat for the other six. Um, so I think what will end up happening is that we're looking at uh, probably about a seven month uh, play test. So it'll probably go august september october november december january i'd say in february march we're gonna be looking at wrapping up the playtest and implementing the feedback we'll be doing that all the way throughout but it, it, things are going to start to get serious yeah uh in february and march so well you have publishing deadlines yeah. you gotta get you gotta get the copy off to yeah, the printer. We gotta get it printed, you know and we actually ended up printing um we did a different printer this time for the playtest to give ourselves the maximum amount of time to get it right um, and then we'll probably be doing something similar next time just to, cause look, is, is the longer, I mean, within reason, uh, the longer, the more time we have getting playtest feedback, the better the final book's going to be. So oh, man. I just can't do it for, you know, two years or something like that. <laughs> well, and people are so excited about this from, you know, I, I hear from a lot of nerds and, oh, do you? and there are, what are they, saying? <laughs> they are excited. They're excited. They, they, well, love, it's good they love Pathfinder and you know, there, there's a, there's a sense of wistfulness, right? There all, there always is when, when sure. something new comes along, but oh my gosh, it it is 97.3% excitement and enthusiasm. So, well, I'm glad to hear that. And you know, it's the, the, in the initial play tests we've done, we did one with the glass cannon podcast that you can download online. We did a bunch of them at the gamma trade show, which is an industry trade show just a, about a month ago. And one of the cool things that I found, and we'll see if this gets repeated, I, I, I expect and, and hope that it will at, at PaizoCon here this weekend, but, you know, people play it and maybe they were skeptical about one or two things that they'd heard about it. But the thing that I've I'm feeling it. And even though we've done some pretty significant changes to things like the action economy and whatnot, people are saying this really feels like Pathfinder. And that's exactly what we were shooting for. You know, we want to make sure that people can still that rich customization of their character. That's like very, very important. You know, um, being able to imagine a hero in your head and then being able to to have the rules make you build that character. Super, super important. Tactical complexity. You know, we're not just trying to dumb it down. We're trying to streamline the presentation of the rules, but we're not trying to make it a, a you know, a beginner game or anything like that. We know people are looking that, that, that our customers can appreciate, you know, complexity as well. And so, you know, that's the, that's the feedback that makes me most proud and most happy is when people say this really does it's better and I really like it and it's faster, but it doesn't feel like something else. You know what I mean? So that, that's what we're shooting for is we want people to be able to tell the same kind of stories that they've been telling, but just with a little bit less, you know, things in the way. All right. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're working on Pathfinder, uh, 24 seven, but surely there is one or two hours in the week where you are doing something else. So what besides Pathfinder are you nerding out on? Uh, it's funny. I was just like about an hour ago in James Jacobs's office. He's our creative director. And we were just goobing out over the same thing. And that's the new season of Westworld. Um, started a little rough for me, honestly. I don't know if you guys follow that no. show on HBO, but oh my gosh, it's great. It's like a science fiction theme park thing. And it's all about, you know, what does it really mean to be a human? And there's these like replicant type hosts that, it, it, that think, well, let's just put it this way, things go wrong in the park and all that. But 
this season, there are five episodes in, I think, maybe, yeah, five. And it, they've really turned things on its head, and it's hard to know who the, you know, the good guy is and who the bad guys are. And it's it really confounded me at first, but I'm they're doing something really complex and interesting. And it's so well performed and it's so unexpected every week that uh I that I give my thumbs up, both thumbs up <laughs> to season two of Westworld. Oh man. And then of course I have to say also because I think I might be the only person I know who watches this. I also really, really, really love the show Legion. Yeah. Um uh, which is so good. It's like a surrealistic superhero show, but it it really isn't a superhero show, but it's got psychics and all kinds of powers and stuff in it. It's very loosely based off of the son of Professor X in uh, Marvel Comics. So there's light touches of, of X-Men stuff in it, but very, very light. And it's just brilliantly done. It's done by Noah Hawley, the showrunner for... Um, the Fargo show that they got there on the, the table right now. And uh, he's great. And so I don't think enough people are watching it. And I think it's on the bubble for getting canceled. So forget what I said about Westworld. It's doing fine. <laughs> Go watch Legion okay. on FX. So, so two things. You bring up Legion. I worship Chris Claremont. You know, I'm a kid of, of Claremont X-Men. So, so yeah. I'm all in. And then you mentioned yeah. the play test uh, with Glass Cannon Podcast. So speaking of that playtest, how did you realize that you had the voice of a 17-year-old boy inside of you? It was really funny. Um, I <laughs> it's so much more pedestrian <laughs> than you might think. So I I I I I've been friends with those guys for a couple of years now, and I've been uh, uh really honored to get to sit in with them on a couple of their broadcasts. And they do a thing called disorganized play, where they play a uh Pathfinder Society scenario with different characters than their normal podcast characters. And I and I brought in uh, a new character for that uh, whose name is Arconis Severus. And he's got a big voice, you know, and he's got a lisp. And, and he's just a, a very high society, you know, ooh, like that kind of a guy. Big voiced character, which is not dissimilar to the kind of hammy characters I like doing. But um, when we recorded that glass cannon thing, it was right after Toy Fair, which is a big toy convention. And I had been sick for like three weeks prior to that, just like constantly losing my voice and 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 coughing all the time. And it was a real question as to whether I was going to even be able to do that at all. And so the night before, I was just sitting there kind of going, what kind of voice can I actually pull off convincingly since I sound like a raspy snake in my normal speaking voice? And that's when this one kind of came out because, you know, and it's a little bit of millhouse, you know, to some degree. But, you know, it's just I wanted to play this character. It's funny because the the character's name was... uh is growing the green, you know, and I thought that was kind of funny because the first level guy in green and everything, but like, uh, literally it all came together like tw 25 seconds before we hit record, um, on the thing. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that voice. And then I looked and the, the, I'd written down like Grimaldi the great or something like that. And I was going to do a very like, uh, you know, like a guy who's totally full of himself, but doesn't actually have any power because he's first level and everything. And so I'm like, if I, if I talk like that, you know, I can't have it be a guy called Grimaldi the Great. So literally, as Jason was introducing the adventure, I crossed out Grimaldi the Great and wrote Grelin the Green, because I thought Grelin sounded much more like the voice that I had in my head. But really, the exciting origin story for that voice is I had a sore throat. <laughs> and I had a sore throat and I had to uh, had to adapt. 
Hey, you have to adapt. The fun thing is we're actually going to be, uh, we're going to be playing the final probably four hours of that event at PaizoCon. We'll be uh, streaming it live on our Twitch channel at official Paizo. Uh, um, and you can check it out. There's a schedule of events that will be live streaming from PaizoCon and that's one of them. So if you want to find out if Grell in the green makes it out of the crypt of the ever flame alive, you can check it out. <laughs> tune in. Yeah. Tune in. Eric, thank you so much, man. We really appreciate this. No problem. It's great to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll see you sometime in the coming year. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Nerdy Jobs, a podcast by your friends at nerdsonearth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Nerds on Earth, or feel free to keep the conversation going in one of our several Facebook groups.